One, two, three, four, five. Yes, we are listening to Music Biz 101 and more on Brave New Radio 88.7 WPSC, the campus of William Patterson, the university. You know, if it's advice you're looking for to succeed in the music and entertainment business, Music Biz 101 and more is the only college radio-based broadcast and podcast that provides you with the free tools for success that you need. We are listening to the Alleyback Project. The world is ours. Alleyback Project is the official song of Music Biz 101 and more on WPSC Brave New Radio 8.7 WPSC, the campus of Brave New Radio University. And we have with us today Dr. Esteban Marconi! Estados Unidos? I'm uh, gone totally. God. Yeah. Yeah. Well, how was your first two weeks, Dave? We had a great first two weeks as I speak to you. I'm your professor, David Philp. We have uh, our uh, two producers here with us, Bianca Russo. Bianca Russo! Bianca Russo! And we have Jess Frank here with us tonight. Jess Frank, there we go. And uh, we're going to have a special guest as well. But the first two weeks have been great. Well, that's good. And we're actually almost done with week three. That's right. And we're in a different studio tonight. I don't know if people can hear the difference. They can probably sense the difference. They can ah, sense the spontaneity. They can sense the extra energy that we're they bringing. They can to sense this. the smallness, the <laughs> shrinkage that we've right. had in this studio. Well, maybe it's just because it's a little cold. Ah, yes. So who's our guest? We have two guests, don't we? We have two guests. We have one guest in the studio with us right now. He is an intellectual property expert, and he was also the second guest we ever had on our show. He is the wonderful and Almost perfect, E. Michael Harrington. E. Michael Harrington here on Music. <laughs> Hello, Mike. Such a nice greeting. Hello, Dave. How are you doing? I've been doing great. How about you? Very good. Very and good. And Michael, a uh, little background. Michael was a professor here. He's been a professor at Berkeley. He's uh, were you you were a professor at Harvard as well, or no, you've, you've I, been a speaker I've done, at Harvard? Right. Right. Okay. He's a, a well-traveled industry veteran who is the go-to guy from news outlets and media when it comes to intellectual property rights. Is that a good thing to say? Well, they know I answer questions that most people wouldn't want to answer because they'd be too embarrassed and they shouldn't. But mm -hmm. yeah, that's that's who I am. Okay, <laughs> so that's great. And maybe uh, if we have time later, we'll talk 86 World Series. He is a Red Sox fan, <laughs> and I'm a Mets fan, and the Mets are in first place as we speak. But we've won three. Since <laughs> You've won three since yeah. then. So actually, you're, you're <laughs> quite far ahead of us right now. We should let you know that if you ever want to know anything about us, go to musicbiz101wp.com. You should sign up for our newsletter. It comes out twice a week, every Sunday at 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. You get your update of all things going on in the biz. And then every Wednesday afternoon at 3.30, you receive an email telling you all about our guest. And Dr. Steve Marconi, who is our guest tonight? He's about to call in, but who is he? We are very fortunate tonight because... Because he's a very timely guest, because this week it has uh, been announced that CSAC, the performing rights organization, has purchased Harry Fox Agency, which is the mechanical rights agency in America, and they handle at least 90% of the all the publishers' uh, mechanical rights royalties. And what they do is actually, if you want to make a recording and you want to make a recording of a tune that you want to cover, either Paul McCartney or 
Miles Davis that you get in touch with Harry Fox Agency and they will tell you how much it's going to cost you. There are several different rates and uh, CSAC has purchased them. And I think we're going to learn today how it is going to benefit both CSAC and Harry Fox Agency. So we're very uh, happy to have the CEO of Harry Fox Agency, whom I met last April, Michael Simon. Yes, and uh, I'm, we spoke a little Spanish at the beginning. Now we're going to speak a little French and say this is a coup d'etat. Ah, oh, could yes, you spell that? Yes, uh, C-O-U-P yeah. and then lots of other uh, hyphens ta, yes, and apostrophes and things. And uh, But this is going to be great because the Harry Fox Agency, for those of you not in the know, is one of the actually most important backroom companies in the industry. Would you guys agree with me, Dr. Michael? Oh, yeah. Or, Professor yeah. Michael? Uh, yes. Quite a big deal. Yes, they're, they're a really big deal. And you can bring him up. He has called in. And actually, right now, we do have and we will introduce to you the CEO of the Harry Fox Agency, Mr. Michael Simon. Mr. Michael Simon on Music Biz 101 and more. Are you wow, there, Michael? Good evening, everyone. Good evening. Hey, how are you doing, Michael? I, now that I'm on your show, I'm fantastic. I'm sure the rest of your day was not, uh, leading up to this was not really that great, but now it's it's probably. No, I, I once was lost, but now I am found. Ah, <laughs> yes. I am your professor, David Philp, and we have Dr. Stephen Marconi. Hi, Mike. Hello. And then we have uh, Professor Michael Harrington on the line as well, actually in live here. To Hi, Michael. Speak with you as well. Hello. Good evening. So we're excited to have you and Dr. Stephen Marconi. Yeah. So Michael, in? I was at Albright College last April. And uh, you were there as well, and you gave us a little talk in the morning, and uh, then you had to run off. And I remember <laughs> coming up to you and saying, gee, I want you to be on the radio show, and you were gone. And uh, Hal Weary, who's gone from Al Albright now, uh, gave me your information, and I thought your talk was very stimulating. I enjoyed the uh, historical uh, aspect that you, uh, you came from that in several of your comments, which I thought was wonderful for the students. So uh, that's what brought me to you. And Here we're we very timely now because <laughs> it was just announced this week that Indeed. Harry Fox Agency is no longer a standalone agency. And we are not. purchased by CSEC for a sum of between 20 and 25 million, it was reported. And I heard those reports. <laughs> <laughs> and I uh, just want to get the uh, inside take on that, how it came about, uh, how it is going to benefit both CSEC and Harry Fox Agency, and then hopefully songwriters and publishers that are connected with CSEC. So, uh, yeah, that's what brought us to you. Well, you know, I was probably running away from Albright College after speaking in order to work on what you just asked me about, since this has been a long time in the making, mm -hmm. uh, really ties into some of what I spoke about at the time, which is that in the 1920s or 1930s, and I swear I will not go decade by decade for the next hour and a half, but <clears throat> in the 1920s or 1930s, it still made sense to have a very strong separation between what we would call mechanical rights and what folks would call performance rights, the rights relating to a, <clears throat> excuse me, the right to reproduce works. I think you may have mentioned it in your introduction. Um, or the right to publicly perform those works. The public performance guys, although they worked on 
clearing supermarkets and elevators and ballrooms. They they did have a very strong focus on radio stations, and Harry Fox for Mechanicals had a very strong focus on record companies, people making vinyl at the time or 8-track tapes, cassettes, and CDs. And the the market for HFA's services was wildly different than the market for a performing rights organization, organization services. But what has happened in the last decade is online music streaming, among other things. And when you stream music online, you now have both a performance and a mechanical. And think about those companies who've raised a ton of money, who've launched a new business, and who are not interested in, in what uh, any of the professors or I have to say about all of the unique sections of the Copyright Act. They really want to get all their rights in one place. So a fragmented market where a streaming service comes to HFA for a mechanical license and the same streaming service goes to several other places for performance licenses, uh, often for the same composition. That market is making less and less sense. So mm-hmm. it, makes, it, it makes absolute sense for an organization like CSAC to look at a company like HFA and think that combining forces would allow them the ability to offer a singular license for the works of, of affiliated writers and publishers that aggregate performance and mechanical rights. Uh, that creates a more efficient market for all the streaming services of the world. And as, the, as listeners, we would listen to your radio station online. Younger listeners have no problem listening to music, streaming it online on a computer. So as, as the music marketplace shifts towards an access-based model, an ephemeral model, an English, a streaming model, uh, if the stream includes both rights, then having an organiz- a single organization that can handle both of them, possibly in a combined license, on top of a single musical works database, creates tremendous benefit for those seeking the licenses, more market efficiency, and more market efficiency will over time reduce the um, complexity of licensing and the cost of licensing, and that will benefit rights holders and creators. Mm-hmm. Now, ever since uh, downloading started to appear, there's been considerable talk in the industry about why don't we have a central clearinghouse in America so <laughs> that there can be a one-stop for the uh, owner of that copyright and, you know, feel comfortable with that. Right. And, and this is maybe the first step towards that type of a thing? Well, one of the challenges we've faced is that it plays well in certain committees in Congress to talk about single database, clearinghouse or designated agency, single source, one stop. But when Congress gets involved and starts creating the processes by which business entities interact with each other. First of all, lots of people get involved in that conversation. They have competing interests. So we've been having a conversation in Congress or in front of Congress for a decade, Mm -hmm. at least a decade, when we started talking 
2004, 2005, about creating a designated agency that would be the single source, even if it was just a single source for mechanical. Yeah. Um, we were talking about that, but trying to create a market solution or a business solution through Congress that has competing interests, that stands for re-election, that hmm. takes time periods off when business doesn't, is, has been an enormous challenge. So this could be this, this is likely the beginning of a business solution to bring the market together. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And who initiated this? Was it CSEC or was it uh, HFA? Oh, that's, that's like trying to figure out who swung first in, in, a, <laughs> in a fist fight. <laughs> I, I may have swung first, but you looked at me funny. And you looked at me funny because I said something to you. And we don't, very right. difficult to trace back to the moment. You know, CSAC is a... Is a is a significant and very successful market participant in the world in which we live at HFA. Mm-hmm. So we've known each other. We, the, the executives know each other, and the, the companies have known each other, and we've worked with each other um, in a much less intense way for a very long, long time. So it's a natural conversation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. How come CSAC and not ASCAP or BMI, just for the fact that and tell tell us if this matters at all, the fact that CSAC being privately held and more of an invitation-only performance rights organizations versus ASCAP or BMI, which anybody can pretty much just join. Um, why would CSAC be a better fit than the other two? Well, you first might want to ask ASCAP or BMI. They would have an equal opportunity, but they, and I can't speak on their behalf, but I would imagine they would have perhaps some institutional concerns based on work they're doing now in Congress and the Justice Department and trying to stay focused on resolving some of those matters. But HFA, people have always thought of us, you know how in the old days you never really knew, you thought UPS because there was a U and an S in it and they delivered packages and you didn't pay them? You received the package, you kind of thought that might be the government, I don't really know. Mm -hmm. People thought for a very long time that HFA was a governmental entity or a public trust entity. And while we have very, excuse me, a very broad client base, HFA was always a private corporation. And we have always tried to operate, you know, subject to compulsory licensing requirements, we've always tried to operate in a free market. So free market participants have maybe an easier time having these sorts of conversations than larger regulated organizations, but I'm really not privy to the decision-making at the other organizations. I, of course, since I've been at HFA for a very long time, believe that everyone should be interested and fascinated in what we're doing, and and uh, our business proposition should be interesting to everybody. But we, should, CSAC, uh, we should take one step back. I'm just thinking for our DYI uh, musicians, and just explain what... Um, where Harry Fox Agency fits in uh, if you want to record a, a song, especially if you want to cover a song. Right. So, so the Harry Fox Agency, or sometimes referred to as HFA, represents 48,000 music publishers and approximately 7 million compositions. Uh, any, any DIY musician or student listener from any of your courses would probably know that a rights holder, whether it's the songwriter who never gives up rights in the work or a songwriter who sells the work to a publisher, 
whoever that rights holder is controls the first use of it. But once a first use is made, and sometimes people find this astonishing, and I have to repeat it, not for you guys, but maybe for your listeners, uh, once a work has been the subject of a first use, it can be recorded by anybody, as long as the fundamental character of the work is not substantially altered, which is an interesting aesthetic discussion. But in general, if a work has been distributed to the public uh, at the direction of the, of the rights holder, then anyone else can record it. So how do you do that? Once you've decided to form a band, go into the studio and make a record, you do need a license to reproduce and distribute that musical work embedded in a master recording, the composition itself. And most of the time, people come to us for that license. The, you can call up the publisher themselves. The publisher will, on many occasions, issue that license themselves. There are circumstances that drive them to do that. But we're administering approximately 180 million mechanical licenses. We issue hundreds of thousands of mechanical licenses per year, millions when it comes to streaming services that launch with millions of recordings on day one. So someone would come to us, and come to us doesn't mean show up in our office in New York, although we have a lot of gear there and people may want to play. Uh, it means reach out to us via one of our online interfaces. We have an application called Songfile, uh, which is a, a tool used by DIY musicians to access our database, see if we represent a work, and then secure a license. Uh, if they're doing more high-volume work, they can call us, and we will take them through issuing licenses to them. They will then report and pay on the uses that they've made, meaning the number of copies they've manufactured and distributed. Mm -hmm. I have a class uh, that we teach here at William Patterson. It's called uh, Structure and Content of the Music and Entertainment Industry. And in our conversation about having you on the air tonight, we actually used Songfile last night and made up, I'm sorry, yesterday, and we made a sort of a faux account and went through the procedures of licensing a song. And one question that I, that I have, and we've used a sample size of one major artist, but we were trying to find, for example, Bruce Springsteen, if we wanted to license a song by Bruce Springsteen. And yeah. we couldn't really find anything on Songfile. So is Songfile, um, does it include major songwriters as well as people like me who nobody cares about? It does. Okay. It does. If we represent them, we don't happen to, on the HFA side, mm -hmm. represent Bruce Springsteen for mechanical reproduction. So you picked... The, the one, one guy artist on the planet. <laughs> <laughs> and this is what happens all the time. Someone says, oh, you have 7 million compositions. Do you have? And we say, you pick the one, you pick 7 million in <laughs> one. Yeah. So, yes, major writers uh, who have works have been recorded by major artists. Sometimes they're one and the same. Sometimes they're not major publishers. Uh, the majority of our database of those 7 million compositions are in there. Okay. And, and I, I own an independent label. And I don't walk down the hallway and talk to the licensing department to get a license. I myself, on a Saturday night, log in to Songfile, and I get licenses through Songfile. If and any of my artists, like Hal Weary, who was mentioned earlier, mm -hmm. I made a record with Hal Weary. He recorded a few covers, and I licensed them through Songfile. Mm -hmm. We should say, though, for the DYI musician, if you don't find the song you want to cover... Uh, at the HFA Songfile, that doesn't mean you are free to go and just do it because you couldn't find it. Right. It just means that your search now has to be deeper. 
Yes. Now, you also have a, a product uh, called eSync as well. Could you kind of explain what that is all about? Yes, eSync is a, um, it's early in, in, in its deployment, so it is not widely known. But eSync is a platform that allows users, it's like Songfile for audiovisual works. And the, it, it is intended to marry, that one of the challenges for the synchronization business, which means obtaining rights to, to have music play in timed relation with a visual image, one of the challenges in that marketplace is that there is no statutory rate, there is no compulsory license. Mm -hmm. Synchronization licensing is hand-to-hand -hand and track-by-track. -track. And for a significant portion of that, it will always be so. In a major song by major artist for primetime TV commercial, probably hand-to-hand -hand combat. But there's an awful lot of what we would call smaller uses uh, that we thought we could marry we could obtain rights in the master recordings we have the right to represent the compositions marry them to the recordings and create a single place where someone could go in and obtain a license for the master and the composition for a wedding video a religious observance video a high school that wants to have a limited distribution product we're in the early days of rolling this out in the CSAC family of companies is a company called Rumblefish, which is uh, ahead of us in that business. That was their uh, one of the cornerstones of their business was what eSync would be about, which is micro-sync licensing mm -hmm. uh, in small uses for the kinds of audiovisual uses that I described. And since they're now a family company, we are going to figure out how to add rocket fuel to our eSync experience with their help and go much more broad into the market with solutions that will power the home users and the DIY users who want to do the right thing most of the time if they can understand what the right thing is mm -hmm. and it's easy to do the right thing. So our job will be to help that market understand what the right thing is to do and then make it really easy for them to obtain the rights that they need. And we think that with HFA and Rumblefish, working together on that, we should have a good shot at it. So is this the kind of product that uh, we have a producer here, uh, Jess, for example. If Jess is one of those people who every Friday night she goes into her bedroom, takes out her acoustic guitar, and does a cover version of, of let's say, Rather Be by Clean Bandit, as an example, uh, right. and then she puts it up on YouTube, is eSync the kind of uh, product that she should go and uh, is, is that the connection there? Or no, that's not what you're talking about. No, the, okay. we, we have other solutions, especially through the Rumblefish family, for, for what, what we people who don't speak English would call, ma here's the phrase, mass synchronization content monetization. <laughs> uh, or putting music on YouTube and making sure the rights are cleared and the right people get paid. <laughs> the eSync the e solution is really for uh, wedding videographer, bar mitzvah videographer. Mm -hmm. uh, the small business. You want to do a corporate presentation. Assume you have a uh, student hall that seats 600 people and you want to do a presentation in front of them. And because you're an academic institution, you are an ethical group of people and you have a music business program so you understand what the issues are and you want to synchronize 
audio in time relation with a visual image, put it up in that presentation, you might think about obtaining rights to do that. You may not. You might think it's ephemeral as one time, and, but you might think about those rights. We see this a lot in, in uh, scientific organizations who have sales teams who go around the country and constantly speak twice a day to groups of 100 people, and they want to show presentations that have music in them. And because they are intellectual property-based organizations, meaning they're drug companies or scientific research companies, they understand intellectual property, and their sales teams are often told not to use the music because they understand that that would be a violation. We would rather have them use the music. We know that they have a budget for it, and it's infinitesimally small in proportion to their overall business cost. So we think there's a business there to enable them to expand their use, uh, their multimedia presentations, and that would be the e-sync world. That's the micro-sync world. What you were describing about the clean bandit recording is more mass synchronization. That goes through a different pathway in Rumblefish. We have a solution for that as well, uh, but it is not a software package with a catchy name yet. <laughs> yeah. Like e-sync, which is just unbelievably catchy. <laughs> so how does uh, Harry Fox generate revenue for themselves? Uh, in several ways. We, when we are representing publishers, which I say that way on purpose because we have several businesses and not all of them are directly involved in representing a publisher in a transaction. If we are representing a publisher, we take a commission on the revenue that is generated by the licenses that we issue. Mm -hmm. Pretty basic. There's, there are a lot of words that people use, which results in no one understanding what, what we're talking about. In essence, if anyone on this call is a music publisher and you have affiliated with, with HFA and we issue a license to reproduce one of your compositions, that licensee record company or streaming service will pay royalties to us. We will take a commission off of those royalties and pay them and pay the net amount through to you. Mm -hmm. That is a revenue stream for HFA. We have user fees, as you guys may have seen when you were knocking around in Songfile the other day. Uh, there, are, there are some relatively painless, I hope, user fees for accessing certain of our public software. That's a revenue source. And we provide a very broad suite of services to the distribution community uh, to enable them to obtain the rights that they need to calculate royalties to make payments without regard to whether or not we represent the rights holder and to help them manage their data. What has happened in the market is in the old days you started a record company, you were a person alone, you made a record, you handled the rights, you handled the contracts, you became more successful, you hired somebody to run your copyright department, which your students may end up working in because they still exist at record companies and they have 20 people at 10 record companies in New York City, so 200 people in New York City work in copyright departments and their job is to interface with HFA or others to obtain the rights that one needs to put out, put out the records. But what happened in the market, the same time that we saw consumers shifting away from physical goods into digital goods, we saw, we saw the market populated by businesses that were not forming copyright departments. They had 10 Swedish technologists somewhere in Europe who raised a bunch of money because they believe that they uniquely could build 
the front-end user experience to captivate the imagination of a music listener, which means, mm. depending on the year you're talking about, Nokia, Napster, Spotify, Rhapsody, now we have Apple Music. Those kinds of companies were not forming copyright departments. They were making in-source, outsource decisions, just like they would for accounting or HR and benefits management and then copyright management. Are they going to hire 20 people, spend $30 million on computer hardware and software to replicate my database inadequately, or can they actually hire us to provide services to them that makes their business more efficient and enables them to focus on what they should focus on, which is developing and marketing their products so people use it so that the music ecosystem has money moving through it. So another line of business that we have is called Flingshot, and that's the business that focuses on providing services to the distribution community and even publishers outside of the area of mechanical reproduction to help them run their businesses and manage their rights, manage their data, and manage their royalties. So those are those are principal revenue streams for HFA. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, a quick question. So to, in terms of how you work, let's, let's give an example of, of a download. Um, if I download a song by Justin Bieber and uh, off of iTunes, iTunes collects, let's say it's $1.25, 70% of that uh, they pay to the record label, out of which I'm assuming, is it the statutory rate in a download that the record label pays to you and then you take your fee and give the rest yes. to the publishers? So, in essence. So for it downloads, is, it, it is, is a statutory Byzantine rate. It is complexity, but that's the essence of it. Okay. <laughs> okay, so the essence is that. So you exist because, one main reason you exist is because the record labels don't have the manpower or the wherewithal to find the 15 publishers who may deal with one Justin Bieber song. So how are you able to have that kind of organization and do all that administration that the record labels don't want to? Because you mentioned earlier, how, is it, how many publishers do you deal with? Is it 40,000 or is it more 48, than 48,000? 48,000 publishers. How is it just over years and years of you just got yeah. really good at this? How are you able to do it the way this can? <laughs> yeah, and it's one of those things where when someone gets really good at it, not very many other people want to try to get really good at it. Um, there are a lot of people now running, running around the industry claiming that they can do better, faster. But the truth is, if you don't have the data and you can't, and so everybody says, so make a public database. I'll get back to that in a minute why that's a fallacy. But if what we have is over 90 years of bringing in compositions, many of which are still under copyright, even if we brought them in in 1940. And I was dealing with a composition today that was written in the mid-40s, and someone is doing something with it now that is very commercial. So we've had that in our database for 65 years, 70 years. Uh, we have built up the, the relationships in the publishing community, the data that, they, that the publishers have that they have parked in our database, but more, more important, everyone, again, this, this notion that I mentioned a minute ago of, just make the list available and everyone will deal with it and you'll have no competitive position. Long term, HFA will not have a competitive position that is based on secret husbanded data. Our competitive position is not because we have the data and you don't. For the, that, that's like saying that novelists have a competitive position because only they have dictionaries. And you may ask yourself why chefs with restaurants publish cookbooks. Doesn't that prevent people from going to the restaurant? Of course mm. not any more than I, with a dictionary, 
could produce a farewell to arms, there is a skill in selecting the right words out of the dictionary and putting them in the right order to produce a farewell to arms. And our skill is not that we have managed to build a database and no one else has. Any number of well-funded engineers can call any rights holder who will probably tell them what their compositions are because they want their compositions to be broadly known because that's how they get exploited and, and that's how the rights holders get paid. So our business is not about we have a secret database. Our business is about tying the compositions to the master recordings, which is unique, meaning making a a relationship in the database between a composition and all of the recordings in which it's embedded. And then the layer of business rules on top of it that says, I know publisher A owns composition X, which is embedded in master recording number two. And when you receive royalties on that one, pay 30% not to publisher A, but to a dentist in Wayne, New Jersey. So our database is a living, breathing, multi-layered organism that ties compositions to recordings to business rules and is broadly able to be integrated into the distribution systems and rights systems of the entire distribution community. It's an ecosystem. So when I hear people say, uh, just make the data free, if everyone published their databases, you'd have data collisions every – when you – for those in the data world listening to this, they know that when you replicate data, it collides and it degrades. Mm -hmm. So if everyone published their data, you'd, you'd look up that Bruce Springsteen in three places and you get three different answers. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Our, our world is, is a different kind of world. And so we've got, you know, we've got about 100 employees in New York, and they are stone-cold industry experts Question uh, who have come out of come out of uh, academic environments like we saw when we were talking to Hal Weary and then they've gotten jobs and they've worked their way up and they work with us to build these environments and to make these relationships. We have on our show next week uh, Stephen Witt who wrote the book How Music Got Free. And mm -hmm. Have you heard of that book? I have heard of it, but I'm embarrassed to say I have not read it. That is, that is totally fine. It's not a gotcha question. Uh, it's, it's more of a, the book is really cool because it covers uh, the time when, uh, when were you in Polygram, by the way? Uh, I was there in the mid-90s. Okay, because I was there at the same time. It covers that whole Kings Mountain era. Uh, I'll get back to you on that. <laughs> yeah, okay. Uh, and, it, and it covers that and how um, people in the warehouse, in the manufacturing plant, were uh, ripping off CDs and, and uploading it to the net. And, oh, uh, it was that, that was... That was excerpted in, in uh, The New Yorker. Yes. Uh, yes. Del, yes, yes that exactly. Was, exactly. That's so how I read, I read that book. article and thought, oh, when this book comes out, I'm going to need to read this because I know Fishers, Indiana, and I know those plants, and I was in the legal department trying to draft contracts, which makes you laugh, that says what thou shalt not do, as uh -huh. if that made one stitch a difference. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, and I guess my question was, that obviously the record industry, the recorded music industry, was really caught flat-footed starting – especially with Napster and going you right. know, up and through, uh, through iTunes and, and, and beyond. Would you say uh, on your end, on the Harry Fox end, I don't know, what year did you start at Harry Fox? I started at HFA in late 2001. Okay, so you were there kind of when the industry really started to go downward, which wasn't really until, uh -huh. I'm thinking, 03-ish, 02, 03, you know. Um, 
do you think on the publishing side and on your side, you guys might have uh, reacted a little better than on the recorded music side? And can you kind of give us a little history lesson as to um, back to the, the Napster era, how things have changed? Because it sounds like all these things you're talking about are really evolutionary and very positive and very uh, forward moving for the industry and for yeah. publishing. And were you always like that? Or this is something that you guys, it took you guys a while to learn as well? Well, you know, I, I hate to speak as an old man, but if you do cut me in half, you can count the rings and see just how <laughs> old of, in the music business I have, I am. I come from the world in which the global general counsel of Polygram sent a memo around saying any person at the company caught accessing the Internet from company property will be immediately terminated. <laughs> uh, and I didn't really... What makes that even funnier is when I got that, I thought, yeah, I don't even know what that means. What is, the, <laughs> why, what is this thing that if I, that sounds interesting. What am I not supposed to access? Therefore, you want The record companies were not, you, you, you will remember, the record companies, they go through cycles where you have massive disruption and business destruction. You have periods of stabilization, and then you have periods of revenue. And the destabilization, the destruction usually occurs anytime new technology is introduced, mm -hmm. whether it's a piano roll or an Edison cylinder or a radio, which was going to destroy the industry because why would you buy music if it was free? Mm -hmm. Sounds familiar. Mm -hmm. uh, why would you do that? Um, and you see these cycles and you look at the record company around the time that we were there, they were... They had come out of the malaise, vinyl was starting to decline, but then they introduced the CD, and at $18 retail for a product that cost less than a dollar to make, call it $250, even if you, add, if you add marketing cost onto it, the margin on a CD was fantastic. So all of a sudden, the nose of, of the record companies is coming back up. People are rebuying their catalog, plus they're buying the new stuff, so in fact, and, and the margin is so good that you have a industry that is minting cash mm -hmm. while the Internet is coming along and real player number one in like 94, 95 is launching. And we're sitting there at the time I'm at Polygram looking at it. Someone, one of my friends came in and showed me real player two. And I said, I don't really know what that this is very interesting, but I don't know what it means. Look around you. Don't you see that we have a real business here? You know, we've got. 2,000 employees. We've got a plant in Indiana. Um, I left the company within six months of that conversation to go work with those guys at a digital media company. And even though I was always from 95 till the time I got to Harry Fox, I was running an independent label, managing bands, working in the music business. I was surrounded by folks who were, who were building websites, who were building who were converting brick-and-mortar companies to be online companies, to do online securities trading. When I went back to the record company and met with all my friends and said, this is coming, and you should at least figure out how to web-enable a CD so that when you pop it into a computer, it opens up a website. It's very early thinking. They said to me what I was thinking two years before that, which is, why would I do that? We're making so much money on CDs. And then in addition to the piracy that, that is discussed in the, in the um, wit book, we have the Internet, which turned very solid pieces of music that are embedded in vinyl or CDs into water, which went everywhere. Hmm. I came into HFA having spent five years at a digital media consultancy 
that was one and one of the three things I was doing, where we spent all of our time migrating businesses into a digitally change managed environment. So when I came into HFA and looked at a company that had been there since the 1920s with one client base, one revenue stream, and one approach to the market, I had that that my head was steeped in digital and forward and so my approach I was I came on board as the chief strategy officer my approach was we should within the bounds of reason and appropriate understanding of copyright and respect for the work that folks put in to create music we should try try to power the new businesses rather than fight with them mm-hmm. and my parent company the NMPA they would always prefer their their preference is not to find a bunch of infringers and beat them into the ground although they sometimes have to do that their preference is to identify honorable forward-looking business executives and help them determine how to go forward and get the rights that they need to run their businesses so we were always looking from the day that i got at hfa got to hfa we were we were looking for a new way of thinking about the uh, distribution community and not having them come into our office and tell them you're criminals and we're going to grind you into the floor, but you know, work with us to bring your business in from the cold and power you going forward. So we have very long standing our relationships with certain streaming services that, you know, that are, you can figure them out, but I'm, but they're generally confidential relationships. They are, five, seven, eight, ten years old. We were trying from the very early days. Uh, the HFA and the RIAA worked out a deal in late 2001 to begin to power streaming services. The, the record companies, it may be by necessity. There, there's something about having your head in a vice hmm. that can make you more creative. And if the publishing side of the equation is suffering mightily, in 2000, 2001, 2002, for whatever reason, you can debate the piracy point. I understand both sides of it. But if, if regardless of the reason, if the raw economics are in decline, your deal makers will become much more creative. So we've been pushing this for a long time. And when we sit with either the film companies, who it was really hard to steal movies because bandwidth was too tight, Mm-hmm. or the record companies that were a little slow and they're talking about how they're being destroyed in the marketplace, we look at them with the greatest sympathy <laughs> and we try to help bring them forward into the world that we've accepted is the future, which is that cre- creators will always be several steps ahead of us and they will always be way outside of the um, relatively inflexible constructs of the Copyright Act until we think about it more cleverly. So we want to we want to power those businesses, not simply say, you don't fit into Section 115 of the Copyright Act, or one of the discrete reproduction, one of the discrete copyright rights. We want to try to figure out how to power those markets anyway, and the record companies do too. Last week, week they've they've become very modern in their thinking too. But in the, when I was at the labels, it was a memo that said, use the internet at your peril, and you will be terminated. <laughs> <laughs> and that's that's at the global general counsel level. So that gives you a sense of the DNA of that organization. That's not easy to turn that ship. And it sounds like Harry Fox 
uh, was not uh, in agreement with Carrie Sherman to start suing and finding the infringers and so on? The, the consumer lawsuits was an interesting strategy. I understand why they did it. Their heart was in the right place. Clearly, rights were being violated. But that, as we all know, that it didn't play very well. And it was much more sympathetic to put on the stand a lower-income individual nurse than the large global conglomerate record company representing the filthy rich rock stars. So that mm. doesn't that doesn't play well. It doesn't mean they were. It doesn't mean they weren't right that their rights were being violated and that their creators' works were not being respected or properly compensated, but. A challenging, a challenging to execute that strategy. The hearts and minds often don't go with the corporate interest, even if the corporation is absolutely correct and those who are violating their rights are absolutely incorrect. So we've struggled to figure out how to best represent our rights in a way that helps the community understand that, look, it's, it's not... It's really not that complicated. If you look at the U.S., it's hard to begin by saying it's not complicated to read the Constitution, which is complicated. But hmm. let's look at the, the U.S. Constitution. Article 1, Section 8 says that Congress has the power to protect the works of authors. The Framing Fathers, extremely liberal people in many respects, but not every respect, believed that a robust democracy needed to have a marketplace of ideas and to have intellectual property be respected because that's where the ideas get turned into expression and that that will move our democracy forward and away from tyranny. If we then do not create a business environment in which those rights that are under that section can be respected, creators will not be paid, and it actually is it's a threat to the public conversation. But it's not always easy to get the hearts and minds aligned with that. Instead, they see large corporate greed wants to get paid and poor individual just wants to listen to a cool song at night. Well, if the people who write those cool songs at night all want to work for free, then they're free to do that. But if some of them actually stop doing that work because they have to buy a refrigerator so that they can have properly refrigerated food for their children, there will be fewer songs written and we won't have the right environment. So the, the right democratic environment. That's that's where the RIAA's head was, which is, hey, you, we live in a democracy. Let's stop stealing people's... The song change going to... I mean, music was very important for the civil rights movement. What if those songwriters couldn't make a living and they didn't write those songs? You don't really want to deprive the, the market of that kind of creative expression. But how do you sell that through when you just look like Lars Ulrich from Metallica or a member of U2 claiming that $50 million a year in income is not enough for you. It's a tough sell. So we didn't go down, the, the publishing side of the community didn't go down that road, but it doesn't mean we didn't understand it. We were mm -hmm. just trying to figure out mm -hmm. how do we capture the hearts and minds in a way that understands that all that music that you're loving so viciously is going to disappear if someone doesn't figure out a compensation model, which includes you. Right. And there was, uh, on top of that, there was at that time a direct correlation between the, um, the, the biggest buyers were also the biggest stealers of yeah. music. Yep. So they were going after their best customers. 
Yeah, and it's, it is, of course, for those who like to theorize, interesting that those who control the rights often control the patents and the technology that's used to violate the rights. Mm. I mean, us polygram, former polygram folks know that Philips had a joint patent on CDs, including CDRs and CDR sales, went through the roof before people figured out how to use USB drives and store them on their machine. Everyone had a spindle of CDRs and was you know, ripping and burning. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And using, using hardware and software created by folks who had another division that controlled the intellectual property that was being stolen. Mm -hmm. so, not an easy, yeah. for me it's always easy, because I do go back to that constitutional proposition that a democracy includes a free marketplace of ideas, but free often requires compensation for those who are contributing to that free marketplace of ideas. Otherwise, they won't. Some people, you know, Thomas Paine may write without being paid for it, and the average kid in the band does, and even some adults do it as hobbyists, and I make records with musicians that are not, that's not their day job, but I know that the Nashville songwriter community has been very hard hit. There are fewer and fewer people who are able to make a lower middle class income as professional songwriters, and what are we losing? You know, Darwin might say, sink or swim, and the ones who are the best will survive, and there's an amount of that, but we are losing a creative middle class mm -hmm. through the absence of certain kinds of enforcement. Our goal at HFA, though, we are not an enforcement organization. We are a, a business validation organization. So if we find people who want to make businesses out of our clients' music, our goal is to figure out how to get them the rights that they need so they can do that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And if we can do that, then our clients are satisfied that the rights that they control and the works that they control are being properly administered and they're being compensated and you've got your business and that's great. Mm -hmm. The we streaming services, they went from no royalties starting in 2001 when we first began to license them until 2008, which is when the rates were first set. And streaming is extremely high growth. It's explosive growth now. Mm -hmm. Had we shut them down, which would have been very difficult to do because it was a market that wanted to live no matter what, we wouldn't have uh, growth in revenue this year. We, we have about a minute and a half left. Uh, two quick things for you. The first is we want to give a shout out to your social media department. Me too. Uh, especially on, on, on Twitter. Mm -hmm. I don't know if it's one person or if it's a group of people, but they did a really tremendous job, and they actually really do a very good job, especially on Twitter, getting the word yeah. out. And uh, yeah. we want to thank them for all the help they did uh, supporting you being on the show tonight. And I promise them. They that seem we, like a thousand people, but they really aren't. Yeah, yeah, I bet. Uh, yeah. But, but I reached out to them today, and I promised them that we would give them a shout-out. So I uh, wanted to do that. And then I think one final question, of course, we have about 300 tweets that we never got to any of them. So we're going to give you one quick tweet question that I think kind of wraps up our uh, DIY. Yes, DIY uh, listener. And it's from uh, at Bobby Mahoney. He says, what is the most common mistake or error you see made by inexperienced people in the industry in regards to licensing music and the Harry Fox agency? And we have about 60 seconds to answer. <laughs> The most common mistake is not reaching out, assuming they're going to get a bad result and therefore not saying anything and getting a worse result. <laughs> it's very easy to get in touch with us. It's very easy to speak to my colleagues 
in client service and in licensing. We can get licenses for you. We can steer you to the right person if we can't. If you don't reach out and you're not successful, you might get away with it. But if you have any degree of success, you're going to have a much less pleasant conversation. So people who believe, oh, it was only 20 seconds and that's not, that doesn't require a license or I thought if I asked, you'd say no. Well, if the truth is, if it really is a no, you probably want to know that in advance. So very simply, enter into the dialogue with the rights community, whether it's through HFA or directly, and you can then either get what you need or understand what the pathway is forward. That's, that's a great. So many people fail to do that. That's an excellent answer. And Steve Marconi, we should really try and book uh, Michael Simon for September of 2016 now, don't you sure. think? We, we have, I still have like 50 questions to ask. Next month we have... Oh, we're going to have Linda Lawrence from CSAC on in October, who you probably know. I do. Fantastic. They're good. Yeah, so uh, so we're going to wrap it up at the moment with Michael Simon. Michael, we really want to thank you for appearing on yeah, Music Biz 101 and more. Michael excellent. Simon, Michael Simon. And Thanks I, for having me. No, it's, it's great. Uh, when the podcast is up, we will let you know. And uh, you did a great job tonight, so thank you very much. And uh, we'll send the can of turtle wax out to you yes. in the mail uh, as your consolation prize. And uh, for those listening, we will be right back, listen to a few PSAs, and we will wrap up the show. Thanks again, Michael Simon, CEO, Harry Fox Agency. You're listening. You're listening. You're listening. You're listening to Music Biz 101 and more. So, Dave, we're deep into the semester. How's it going? Great. You've been busy on Wednesday nights at 8 o'clock? Yep. Co-hosting Music Biz 101 and more with you. Who have our guests been? Indie artist and alum Lauren Marsh, PR guru George Dassinger, Rosie Lopez, president of Tommy Boy Entertainment, and Adam Kornfeld, Rod Stewart's booking agent. I miss them. Is there any way I can still hear their words of wisdom? Sure. Every show becomes a podcast that you can hear on our website, musicbiz101wp.com, or on the Stitcher mobile app, and it's all free. Who's coming up next? Grammy-winning producer Harry Wanger, Warner VP Dan Goldberg, Sean Rosenberg, the engagement director at Huge. Oh, that's big. <laughs> I get it. The guests keep getting better and better. Our listeners, too. That's Music Biz 101 and more every, every Wednesday, Wednesday at 8, 8 p.m. Only on 88.7 WPSC Brave New Radio. Listening. You're listening. You're listening. You're listening to Music Biz 101 and more. Right. We are back. Music Biz 101 and more on WPSC Brave New Radio 88.7 on the campus of William Patterson University. I'm your professor, David Cope, of course, along with Dr. Esteban. Yes, I'm just trying to absorb that whole yes. last hour that we did. Yes, that was a pretty uh, interesting, awesome interview. Intense. And you had a lot of great stuff to say. Yeah, we need to get him. We really do need to get him on again because we have uh, we we're, we're during the break. We were talking about all the uh, 
questions that besides all the tweets that we didn't get to, we didn't get to a, a whole laundry list of questions, especially about streaming and Spotify and mm-hmm. how these rates were even created. Because the biggest thing is so many songwriters and publishers are screaming that they're not getting paid enough, especially as it pertains to uh, streaming. And we could have had more time. And I, did, I wanted to ask him one specific question, which is that I never got to ask him. Is Harry Fox like Betty Crocker and um, Marie Callender? And <laughs> is there really, right. was there ever? And Colonel Sanders. Or and... Harry Fox, right. Right. And I never got to ask him that question. The trivia side, yeah, but yeah. it would have been that... interesting. We can, uh, we can tweet Johnson. the Harry Fox agency at, I think it's at HFA, at HFA. I believe mm-hmm. that's what it is. And we can maybe we too, because we did talk about their social media people as well. We have with us Michael Harrington. We have about uh, two and a half minutes left. And Michael was sitting in and listened to all this. What kind of comments and thoughts did you have as you were listening to all that was going on? Have you And you have never met Michael Simon. No. Mm-hmm. Okay. First thing I was interested in would have been to go back to the government stuff. <laughs> I was thinking and, when he was talking about the Constitution and all that. Right. Well, also, but how you deal with... Um, the competing interest in the music industry, the, the fact that songwriters are against mu- performing musicians right now in the Fair Play Act, and in the performance rights organizations and publishers are against musicians. Musicians and record labels are together against them in the oddity of that. And I, was, I would have asked him maybe how uh, he thought of Gerald Nadler, who said before, uh, a congressman from New York, who's, mm-hmm. who wants to help the music industry, but he says, you have to get your act together. And with everything being such a mess, um, we're not good at it. So, <laughs> yeah. and, and how that works out, that, that's why it's so cool and interesting that HFA would get together with CSAC, that that would happen. Like, they're, they're thinking music rights. It's the European model that goes on in other countries exactly. that's finally come here. And I just think it's great that that has occurred. Maybe it'll influence other people, and it could be more of a business solution than legislative. Yeah, well, definitely consolidation or homogenization is the thing today obviously to save money uh and we didn't even get to that aspect of it (laughs) but the whole idea of this as i brought up this clearinghouse to work towards a central clearinghouse would just be wonderful Mm -hmm. like they do in europe right and uh, he did address the competition he didn't say by name for cobalt entertainment for example and irving azoff has his uh global music rights company so Mm -hmm. those are two companies trying to infringe. So we're getting uh, lots of ugly faces from our producers, Jess Frank and Bianca Russo. Not that they have ugly faces, but they are contorting their faces to tell us she's smiling, telling us that we should really not be on the air starting in about 10 seconds. Why not? Let's do it. Okay, so you've been listening to Music Biz 101 and more on Brave New Radio of WPSC on the campus of William Patterson University. Make sure you go to our website, musicbiz101wp.com. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at musicbiz101wp. We'll be back next week with Stephen Witt, the author of How Music Got Free. And, of course, you can always go to SoundCloud, iTunes, or Stitcher Radio and listen to any of our podcasts because they are extremely perfect. So I would like to thank you. I am Professor David Kerr-Philp saying thank you for... I'm looking forward to next week. Yes, Dr. Stephen Marconi, Ah. Bianca Russo behind the board, Jess Frank behind the board. And we would like to say to all of you a hearty and heartfelt adios!